Well, good morning. Why don't we stand together? First uh, Peter chapter two, beginning in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, this text is loaded with application. And at first glance, it may not come across that way, but as we dig deeper verse by verse, as we peel back the layers, we can see you have so much to say to us. I pray, God, that you would help me clarify these observations and these life applications to the church in a clear way that is understandable and that your spirit can, can use. We're looking forward to our time together, and we pray that we are changed from the inside out, and we can apply these things to our lives in a not only this week and this month, but as a lifelong process. We look forward to our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Before I forget, I need to hand out something to you. I have a, a sermon outline that I think we would probably all benefit from using. So I'll just wait till those get handed out. Has everyone received the sheet okay? All right, thanks. Well, if you remember where we left off last time, we saw Peter using Old Testament temple imagery as a means of providing encouragement to Christians who were undergoing trials and persecutions because of their faith in Christ. Now, the reason why Peter used this kind of imagery was to tell them and show them how privileged they were in the fact that they had free access to God in worship, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now the privileges they had were completely different than the believers in the Old Testament, and that's why the Old Testament temple imagery was necessary. You remember in the Old Testament that God was off limits if you came to worship Him. Everything about the temple in terms of its layout and function made that very clear to you. You could not access God. But this was not the believer's reality as God was completely now accessible to him because of the cross. And of course, these truths for the Christians back then are true for us today. And Peter used two metaphors to illustrate uh, from the temple the spiritual realities they had in Christ. One was this idea of them being living stones in a spiritual house. And we looked at that in detail. And the second was this idea of them being holy and royal priests. And 
If you look at the outline, I've titled the outline uh, Holy and Royal Priests. And you remember that one of the key roles as a priest from previous sermon was to offer spiritual sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, the priests offer animal sacrifices as a means of worship. Uh, we are priests, but we don't, we, don't have, we don't negate worship. We actually do it in another way, not through animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. And I listed all the spiritual sacrifices there on that page. We, we sacrifice our bodies. We give them our praise, we, how we use our money and possessions, how we support Christian workers financially, uh, how bringing people to the Lord and converts, our love and our prayers. These are all spiritual sacrifices. They all deserve a sermon in and of themselves, but um, we didn't have time for that. But there's a secondary role, beginning in verse 9, as priests, a holy and royal priesthood that uh, Peter picks up on, and that is this idea of witness. We are to witness. And there's two, there's two ways in which we're to witness. One is in our talk, and one is in our walk. And we really pick up these two things from the so that clauses in verse 9 and 12. Look at verse 9 with me. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own, own possession, so that, here's the purpose, you may proclaim the excellence of, of Him. So you proclaim and talk, you speak about Jesus. And in our walk, look at verse 12, keep, yourselves, keep your behavior of excellent amongst the Gentiles so that, in the thing in which they stand or use evil do is, they may observe your good deeds and as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we'll talk about that more in detail. But these are the two so that clauses and these are the two ways we're to witness as priests. We're to be uh, priests in our talk and priests in our walk. So let's look at verse 9 and talk about what it is to, to, to uh, be a witness in our walk. You see here that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This word proclaim, interestingly enough, is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only used here in the New Testament. Now the definition of proclaim is in this Greek word is to tell forth or declare something that is otherwise unknown. Uh, some actually in the commentaries uh, had the word advertise, where to advertise the excellencies of Christ. Now this category of excellencies is kind of ambiguous here because it's, it's like in what, in what arenas. Um, but Peter definitely has in mind this idea of redemption, to proclaim the fact that, about Christ's redemptive work. And we actually see this in the second half of verse 9. He says, you, you will proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So from darkness to light, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And, now you, and, now, and you had not received mercy, but you've received mercy. So the whole focus of the, ex, the proclamation of excellencies is in the area of salvation. Salvation. He wants us to declare the magnitude of who Christ is and what he's done for us and for the people we're talking to. And really what he's asking for is us to declare about his love. Really in one word it's his love. Despite the fact that we're all sinners, despite the fact that we deserve God's judgment and to be separated from him, he wanted to be in relationship with us. And so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to lay down his life for us and die as a substitute for, for our sins so that by faith, when we put our faith in Him, we're freed from God's judgment and given this gift of a new relationship with God and ultimately the promise of heaven. If you want the gospel message in 
20 seconds, there you go. Now here's the thing. There'll be many people will proclaim this message to that won't want to hear it. These are what I call the self-righteous people who don't care about anything you have to say or anything you declare about Jesus Christ. But for the brokenhearted in Opatos, for the guilt-ridden people in Opatos, the people who are full of regrets and pain, it's incredible to think that God would unconditionally love someone like that to that degree. And for them, that is good news. And that's the message we're to proclaim. But here's the thing, church. I don't want to miss stating the obvious here, but for someone to receive that mercy and to become a people of God and move from the kingdom of darkness into light means we actually have to be speaking. <laughs> we have to be speaking. And Peter assumes as priests that we are. He assumes it. He says, you are a chosen race, a people for God's own possession, so that you'll proclaim. So the gift of salvation is not just to forgive you of sin, as good as that is. You have now an obligation to the Lord to proclaim that to other people. We're saved. It's not, a, it's not a salvation just for selfish purposes. It's so other people can hear the gospel message as well and receive the same benefits and blessings that you have. So the question I think we all have to ask ourselves is, how have we been, how have we been doing as a church in that area? When was the last time you or I shared the gospel with anybody? Was it this week? Was it this month? Was it this year? Has it ever been a reality for us in our lives? Ever once? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And God wants to use you and I. And so we are to be active as priests in our witness and sharing those truths with people. If you look at the outline again, you'll see that the second way I've written down to proclaim His excellencies is in His goodness. And specifically the goodness of His ways. Now I realize that Peter doesn't have anything about this in his text. So contextually, there's no verse that says we're to talk about His ways. But I wonder if proclaiming the excellencies of Him includes more than just salvation. And when I share this with you, I think you'll understand exactly what I mean. You know, too often as Christians, we often only focus on God's saving work and on redemption and salvation, but we fail to recognize His goodness in many other areas of His lives and what it means to be blessed by Him relationally. The truth is, the purpose for His salvation is not just to give us hell insurance and to forgive us of sin, but to walk in a relationship and to teach us how to live out our lives. So when we, when we walk with God in special ways, we experience His blessings when we're obedient to Him. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Those of you who are financially have gone God's way, how are you doing lately with, God, with your finances when it comes to going God's way with money? That you're doing really well. But you don't have the same anxiety that other people do and the same stresses. I bet you it's your, your condition has changed drastically. How about parenting? You ever had orangutan kids? Couldn't get them to like toe the line? had difficulties, lifting you off, never listening to you, you go God's way, next thing you know, they're obeying you, listening to you, your family's totally different, the way it operates in public, and you not have the same stresses at the bank and in the, in the playgrounds and all sorts of places, right? How about marriage, going through difficulty after difficulty, you start obeying God in His roles, men to be sacrificial in their love, women to be respectful, next thing you know, the marriage turns around. 
How about those of you who have been unforgiving and just bitter, and it just rips you apart day after day after day. You take God's word to heart, you start forgiving those who have done injustices to you, and you find new freedom and new healing. How about healing in other areas of life through bad experiences that happened to you, and through His word and through the power of His Holy Spirit, you're now finding new freedom. You see, pride is a funny and sneaky little thing. We often get caught in the trap of thinking that all the blessings we've received in life is because we've done such a good job. We've worked really hard, we've done this and that and the other, and we attribute the blessings to ourselves. But I was reading a guy by the name of Wayne Grudem, and he said this, and he's, he's bang on. He says, too often, this purpose of redemption, the, like the purpose meaning proclaiming his excellencies, too often this purpose of redemption is often thwarted by our silence or self-congratulatory pride. Too often our purpose in redemption is thwarted by our silence, so we just don't say anything, we don't proclaim anything, or our self-congratulatory pride because we forget who in fact gave us the life that we have. I'll never forget a Bible study Denise went to at Dan and Jody Jansen's house. It was just for girls only. And it's about, this is about seven years ago. Jody, uh, Denise comes home and I said, so what was your study about? She goes, pride. And I said, oh, that'd be very interesting. Like, what, what was the main subject? And I was expecting her to go down maybe like, you know, the whole scene in the Garden of Eden or different kings in, in, you know, in the Old Testament. And you know what she said? She, Denise says, Jody talked about this where we are so subtle in our pride. For example, uh, we go God's way with parenting, say, and you're in the public arena, and a parent walks up to you and says, man, I just love how your kids like, behave, and they're so good, and they're that, that. And then what do you say? Thank you. Okay? Thank you. for like, So in other words, I did this job really well, and I should be proud of myself. When the reality is, is that all of us would be suckers as parenting if we did another good word of God in front of us. Because we wouldn't know what to do. We think we'd know what to do, but we wouldn't know what to do. Right? Instead of saying this, wow, thank you, uh, that was a, a wonderful compliment, but I can't take all the credit for it. What do you mean? Well, I'm a Christian actually, and I used to be a pretty horrific in my ideas about parenting, but since going God's way with this, man, my family sure changed around. Or financially, man, like, it's amazing being around you. You're so generous, and you never seem to worry about money. And you say, yeah, that wasn't the way I used to be. What do you mean? Well, you know, I used to be that way and then I became a Christian. I started going God's way financially and things totally turns, turns around and He's taking care of me over and over and over again. And I'm no longer free. Of, I'm free of this like burden now. Or you could just say, thank you and move on. Right? You see, it just goes on and on and on. Area after area after area. And I think we can as witnesses proclaim His excellencies. And I think it really matters. It's actually, it can actually lead people to Christ. It can lead people to Christ. And I'll give you the story of someone who came to Christ. Actually, I'll give it to you now. Why not? So, uh, they just happened to be, it's just their family's like front and center today, but the Jansen family again. So, uh, years ago, they, Dan joins a baseball team in the community. And he wants to get involved so he can like, be a witness and build relationships. He meets this couple and they become friends. He invites them over to their house for dinner and they start building a friendship. And then one day they're over for dinner and Dan and Jody um, rehearsed her testimony so that she could give it that night after supper as a way of trying to evangelize this new couple. Dan uh, said that 
as the night pro progressed, they looked for an opportunity to start speaking this, this giving Jody an opportunity, and it came. And so she started speaking, and Dan's telling the story. He says, Andrew, it was everything in my power just to contain myself from not tearing up because it was so powerful and emotionally just gripping. And then I go, so what happened after she was done? And the family just said, they basically said, pass the, pass, pass the butter or like pass the bacon or whatever they were eating. It didn't even phase them. Like it, it went right in and out of their heads. They didn't even listen. Or they listened, but they didn't even hear it. Few, so Dan and Jody are crushed because they're thinking, man, this is our, this is, that's all we got. Like this is our best shot. A few minutes later, the wife says this, uh, where are your kids? And they said, uh, downstairs. And they go, well, we haven't hurt them and they haven't interrupted us a million times. And uh, what the, like, well, how, what's going on? It opened up a huge conversation about how they raised their children God's way. Few, uh, not too long later, that family came to Christ. <laughs> because they declared God's excellencies and the way they're parenting. And they got interested in Jesus Christ because, wow, He makes a difference in family, not just forgiveness of sin. Alright, so that's Rola's... I know that's not, again, contextually, that's me adding that piece, but I think it's important to, to, to talk about that. Role as priests now. Go back to your outline. Not only are to, are to be witnesses in our talk, but in our walk. Verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they are slander, you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Really here, church, we have two areas in our walk. One is abstaining in verse 11, and two, maintaining in verse 12. Verse 11 says that we are to abstain from fleshly, fleshly lusts. Uh, some of your translations might say passions of the flesh. Now, fleshly lusts are the strong desires that every human has that are characteristic of the sinful nature. They're the, they're the strong desires that every human has that are characteristic of the sinful nature. And a commentator worded it well. This is Andrew Lincoln, he said this, It is the sphere in which life is lived in pursuit of one's own ends and independence of God. It's the sphere of life in which you basically say, God, I don't need you, I'm sufficient unto myself. Now, what's really cool is in Ephesians chapter 2, we actually are given the two areas of fleshly lusts. He actually describes these two areas in which it occurs. He says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. For those of you who are new to the scriptures, he's talking about the devil. The, the, that whole thing is about the devil. You're walking in his power and his ways. He says, Among them we too were formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulged in desires of the flesh and of the mind. He characterizes the physical body on one side and the mind. So there's, the fleshly lusts come on two specific areas of our life. Now the lusts of the flesh are any desires that are attached to the physical body that will drive us to want to feel good. It's anything that want, makes you want to feel good. And when you're born, it's just inherently in nature in you. You, you don't, like, you don't uh, learn these things. They're just inherently there as part of being part of the world system. So here's a good one, like sex. It's this, this drive to want to have it. Again, within the confines of marriage, it's appropriate. 
but not outside, but the flesh wants it constantly outside of marriage. Food. Food is, of course, really good. But when it turns into a habitual gluttony, then a problem comes. And these lusts don't go away. And I'm experiencing that more and more as I'm in ministry. Because I never drank coffee in my entire life. Well, that's not true. I had the exceptional coffee once a year. Now I'm in the coffee shop virtually every day. And every day I want the caramel macchiato with extra whipped cream and sauce. That's what I want. But the problem is, is that every time I look, I did that for a while, and I noticed something I had that I never had in my life. And it's not because of my age, it's because of caramel macchiatos. That fleshly lust doesn't go away. It just doesn't. So I order peppermint tea once in a while, which I would never drink on God's green earth. But it's my only way of trying to stay fit. But the flesh wants it. I want it all the time. But I have to learn to say no. That's why drugs and alcohol are attractive. When we're down and out and we're depressed and life, when we're just kind of fed up, we like drugs and alcohol because it's an escape. It makes you feel good, at least temporarily, and there's no, nothing wrong with it in the moment, at least in our own heads. But we like these things and we want these things, and these, these are cravings and desires that do not go away until the day you enter heaven. I'm sorry to say you will have these desires until the day you die. How about the lust of the mind? Well, the lust of the mind are basically the all about me attitude. It's all about me. How you stand to gain in this world. Here's the lust of the mind. I wonder what people think of me. I wonder if they like my clothes. I wonder if they think I'm funny. I wonder if they think I'm good looking. I wonder if they think I'm a dweeb because I'm a Christian. I wonder if they think I'm fun to be around. I wonder if they think I'm a hard worker. I wonder if they think I'm stupid. And then it just drives us, these lusts of the mind about wanting everyone else to look at us a certain way. And it, the whole focus is ourselves, and it makes every attempt to prop ourselves up, and, and that's how we get depressed. If we're around someone that we see, we see ourselves as uh, greater than us, it drops us into a, a, a state of depression. If we see ourselves as being greater than somebody, it elevates ourselves above someone else in that moment temporarily. But these are the lusts of the flesh. Whether it's an inferiority complex or a superiority complex, it's still the lust of the flesh and it drives, it'll drive you until the day you die. And it doesn't go away just because you become a Christian. If that was true, Peter wouldn't appeal to their will by saying this in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. He's not going to urge you to abstain if... It, if uh, the gospel frees you of any urge to go back to those things. <laughs> right? There's no, I mean, uh, there's no point in telling us that if being a Christian makes you impervious to such temptations. At the same time, though, Peter command, Peter's command implies that such desires are not uncontrollable, but can be consciously nurtured and restrained. And we have a choice through the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word to obey him and to go his way or to obey the lusts which are driving us into the ground. Now you see why this why Peter calls this war. You notice that? These wage war against the soul. And you think about war, it's nasty, it's ugly, it's painful, it requires incredible perseverance. And it's not over until one side wins and one side loses. Now it's the same for the truth for the battle inside a person. This battle for whether one will obey the fleshly lusts or will they abstain 
or will they abstain and go God's way? And this is all internally won or lost in the mind. And it matters in the mind because what happens in the mind is how you live out your life. Right? Your, however you think is going to dictate how you live. So if it starts here, it's going to affect your action, and that's why it matters. And verse 12 is going to make this clear. I was thinking about adjectives to try to describe the intensity of this war. But I thought, why not take a clip from a movie that you all know well to drive home this point? fleshly lusts versus God's spirit inside of you. You get the intensity of that battle scene as it goes silent and you hear the heart thumping. That's exactly what happens. And when those two cats tangle, that's exactly what's happening in your life. God's spirit is screaming out to you to go his way and to abstain from going the way the flesh wants. And, and um, you have these fleshly lusts like this witch in, in Narnia who is, who's just as powerful in many ways and so attractive. And so you have to learn to abstain and fight these urges. What are some of these urges? We went through a brief scenario. Let me show you just Galatians 5, 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nice list there. And as you see, uh, some of these are lusts of the flesh, like the physical body, and some of these are lusts of the mind. Like envy would follow in the mind, and drunkenness is the external physical body. And so these lists fall into these two categories quite nicely. But again, we'll crave these things until we die, and it doesn't, but it doesn't mean we can't have victory either. 
And the author of Hebrews reminds us that the same battles going on in our lives occurred in Jesus. Did you know that Christ was tempted with the exact same things as you were? Part of him being man, God in, in man's, with a man's uh, nature in many ways, and to experience the incarnation was to be tempted in the things that we were. But he learned to say no. And that's why we can go to him as an advocate when we're tempted. Hebrews 4 to 15, 4, 15 to 16, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So again, the Lord doesn't, is not unacquainted with the struggles you're going through. He knows all the struggles you're going through. But he learned to say no, and that's how we go to him in times of temptation. Okay, finally then, our role of witness. We're to witness in our talk, and witness in our walk through abstaining, and now maintaining. Verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in the thing in which they they may observe your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. The word maintain is not specifically used here in this passage as was abstain in verse 11. However, the phrase keep your behavior excellent implies a pattern of life that's ongoing. He didn't say keep that one behavior excellent that one time. Keep your behavior excellent means there's a, there's a pattern of life in which you're mixing and bumping shoulders with non-Christians. So it's a pattern of life. So we're to maintain this pattern of life. The assumption, though, by Peter here is this, that you and I are bumping shoulders with the world. If you're amongst the Gentiles and in keeping your excellent behavior amongst them, it assumes that you're amongst them, you're, that you're with them. And it's uh, important because Peter assumes that we're not in a Christian little holy huddle, right? We're not in this Christian bubble, but he expects that you and I are mixing this up. And I've talked about this before, but it's said that within seven years of a Christian's life, once a person becomes a Christian, typically they don't have any more non-Christian friends. I've heard even five years, but I've heard five to seven years, most of us don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. And that's not what Peter wants, nor is that what he's saying. We don't need to witness to our fellow believers, we need to witness to those who don't know the Lord. Through our talk and through our walk. And we know it's an evangelistic purpose. The whole purpose of this is not so that we can conform to their way of life, it's so that they will become saved. Notice he calls it, that they, he hopes that as they observe our deeds, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. This day of visitation is an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament uh, phrase. It's the concept in the Old Testament where God uh, on occasions visits mankind for either judgment or blessing. So when God visits you in the Old Testament, he's come to judge you or to bless you. Now, the similar word is used in the New Testament. The word visitation is used there again in terms of judgment and blessing. And the blessing is particularly in the area of salvation or redemption. And Peter, of course, has this in mind here in redemption. So that even though the pagan world may be hostile to us and slander us as evildoers for the way we live, that one day those same behaviors which we are criticized for become the tool by which they are ultimately led to the Lord. You see that? that one day the, 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 these believers, the, for what we are criticized, becomes the tool by which they are ultimately led to the Lord. And it's humbly 
it's crazy and humbling actually to think about how God can use us in this way. And I want to finish with one story about how this actually came to be in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in World War II. In World War II, uh, there was a camp located in the Philippines uh, run by a head commander named Kenoshi. Kenoshi was a brutal man. He tortured and murdered many people uh, and starved to death many of the inmates in the camp, or the prisoners, I should say. And he invented a way to torture people that no one else had heard of. He would starve people for days and weeks on end until they were near death, and then he would feed them unhusked rice. Because a rice that's unhusked has a shell around it. But this shell was razor sharp, so when the prisoners ate it, it cut the lining of their intestines, causing internal bleeding, and they would die in hours. And this is a journal entry from Herb Klingen. He was a missionary who was in, a camp, in camp Kenoshi for three years. He said this, quote unquote, we had, we had not tools to remove the husks, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with heavy sticks consumed more calories than the rice would supply. So it was an inevitable death sentence for all internees. Fortunately for Herb and his family, the camp was liberated by Allied forces in February of 1945, so he didn't die. But Kenoshi fled and years later was found in Manila working a golf course as a groundskeeper. He went on trial for war crimes and was hanged accordingly. Before his execution, this was his confession. I believe in and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they asked him how this came to be, he said because he'd been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christians he had persecuted in the camp. <laughs> Listen, you want to talk about war going on on the soul? Look at this category. You are watching people being killed and you're getting starved to death? How do you control outbursts of anger? Strife. Envy. Impurity. Right? How do you go through that and fight that? I mean, he was able to, these Christians were able to do it in this setting. I mean, we have a hard enough time doing this in our relationships. And we're in a loving environment with lots of food. Right? Like how, how we have a hard time controlling ourselves in marriage. With our family. With our co-workers. And these Christians are leading this Kenoshi, this commander to Christ because of his testimony under the most extreme, harshest of conditions. But this is a practical example of how to win someone to the Lord through behavior and conduct. So how do we become royal priests? We are to be worshipers of Him through spiritual sacrifices. We are to be witnesses for Him in our talk about His redemption for us, His plan of salvation for the world, the goodness of His ways, and in our walk by abstaining these, against these fleshly lusts that want to control our lives but maintaining good conduct as we obey the Word of God and His Holy Spirit's leading. Oh, there's many lessons in here, but I want to just give you three. Lesson one. As witnesses for Christ, we need to not only proclaim the truth concerning His salvation, but also the goodness of His ways. 
right? We need to proclaim not only the truth concerning his salvation, but the goodness of his ways. You know, I, I think church, like at least for me, and I think it probably is for you, our biggest problem in our culture is probably insecurity. If I were to ask you why you don't speak more about Christ in your life, it's probably insecurity. You were so worried about what other people think of you more than you're worried about what God thinks of you. And the reason I know that is because that's what I go through in my own life. And every moment that I have a chance to speak, I have to, I have to decide I'm gonna, if I'm going to obey the flesh or obey the Spirit. And you, you'd be given the same call as I have. This priestly duty here, he's not talking to only pastors. He's talking to church goers. All Christians. Second lesson. As believers, we will always have to fight against the fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls. However, we still have a choice whether we will succumb to them or not. We're never going to have victory in terms of this fleshly lust, in terms of it always trying to get us. It's always going to want to do battle against us. But Paul, or sorry, Peter believes we can abstain still. We can abstain and we have a choice and we can fight against those urges and we can actually go his way. I mean, the Bible uses the word sanctification. Sanctification is a process of maturity or being set apart for holiness. There's an assumption that we get more mature in our faith when we get older. And hopefully when you meet people who are 60, 70, 80, 90, they're not dealing with the same issues that you and I are dealing with at, as a, at a younger age. Hopefully those people have gone through those things and have stories of maturity of how God's shaped their character. If not, then they're basically like you know the Christians and Hebrews who they're still on, still on milk, but they should be on meat by now. But it may not that be said of our lives. Maybe every year, every five years, if you look back in your life every five years as a Christian, Maybe you'll be able to say, you know what? I've grown this last five years. I've grown this last five years. I've grown this last five years. And there's been victory in these areas. That these lusts don't dominate us the way they may have before, to the same degree. Lesson three. Final lesson. As witnesses for Christ, we need to live alongside secular people in a way that, through our behavior, will influence them towards faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I had Dan and Jody's testimony here as my example, which I gave you earlier because I felt the timing was more appropriate. But I want to do uh, leave you with one quote from Alexander McLaren to finish. This is what he said. And I didn't just pick him because he's Scottish. He's uh, he's, got, he's, he's wise. <laughs> he's a wise Scot. I'm, we, I think I know a couple of people like that. <laughs> Not here. <but> it's <laughs> The world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us as a great deal more than the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. Right? The world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than the Bible. They see us, but they only hear about Jesus Christ. That's his comment on verse 12. That's his comment on verse 12. You don't know what God will use. You don't know if it will be your marriage. You don't know if it will be the way you handle money. You don't know if it's the way you deal with conflict. You don't know if it's the, your temperament. You don't know if it's the way you parent your kids. You don't know any of those things. Only the Lord knows. 
So we have to keep our behavior excellent, focus so hard. Like we have to drive our behavior to obeying the Lord Jesus in all these areas so that he can use us in multiple, multiple facets because you don't know which part of it he will use. It may not just be the words you use. It might just not be able to speak, speak truth about the gospel message. He can use any area of your life. And so I urge you to be conformed to the image of his son in every area that you live as a Christian. Amen.